Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's show is brought to you by Hiscox Small Business Insurance. Get customized insurance for your business right now. Go to hiscox.com, that's H-I-S-C-O-X.com forward slash slate to learn more and to get a free quote. Today's episode is also sponsored by a product I genuinely love, which is something I cannot say about a lot of products, honestly. It's the Great Courses Plus Video Learning Service. These are hundreds of lectures by top professors on anything your nerdy heart desires to learn from cooking to calculus. No tests, no expectations. You watch whenever and wherever and on whatever device you like. For example, Your Deceptive Mind is a brilliant, comprehensive course that looks at the ways that we're bad at thinking, in case you hadn't already figured that out from Facebook. And now, The Great Courses Plus is offering Think Again listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including Your Deceptive Mind, which is a $215 value for free when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash think. Start watching today. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash think. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Europe is lost. America, lost. London, lost. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers around. On the Think Again podcast, we step out of our comfort zone, surprising our guests and me, your host, with unexpected conversation starters from Big Think's interview archives, ideas we didn't come here prepared to discuss. Today, I'm sitting here with Kate Tempest, of whose work I am a huge fanboy. Kate is a fiercely talented poet, rapper, and novelist from Southeast London. That last part is relevant because she still lives there, and the place itself and the people that she's known there are a strong presence in her writing and her voice. Kate's epic narrative poem, Brand New Ancients, won the Ted Hughes Award. Her critically acclaimed rap album, Everybody Down, and her single, Europe is Lost, are on constant repeat in my telephone. And her first novel, which was just published, The Bricks That Built the Houses, deals with the human heart stuck and wriggling on the pin of our inhumane times. Welcome to Think Again, Kate. Thanks, Jason. Nice to be here. What was it like writing your first novel after working in such different mediums? I mean, specifically thinking about rap, I know that there's like a kind of like energy and electricity and immediacy in the writing and the recording of rap that is different from sitting down and writing long form prose. The, yeah, I mean, it is very different, obviously, from something as yeah immediate, as you say, is the right word, as making music or writing rhymes. It was huge. It's epic. The form is epic. It's, a, it's an insane undertaking. And you don't realize how big it is 
until you were kind of in it and you realised that if you want to make a change to kind of chapter two, you have to work that change right from the first page all the way through to the end. And in order for a novel to be to read well and to be a successful novel, the writer of it has to have been on such a journey. It needs to be a complete universe in the writer's head, you know? Yeah. The writer needs to know everything. The, the second or third draft of that novel was about four times the length of, of this one here, that, that is the published one. Okay. So, it's, yeah, it's a hugely different thing to writing rhymes or rapping in a studio. But it's interesting that you ask me that because I've been thinking about rappers are at the forefront of people that are equipped with language in a really specific way. We have this skill to unpack language, to understand it. We carry it around in our heads, in our mouths. We're, we play with it. We kind of push it forwards to kind of try and make new sense out of out of it you know it's a really intense form yeah. and um i really think that there are some rappers that i know whose work i love and i would absolutely love to read a novel that they wrote you know it's such right. a, it's such an interesting journey to go on as somebody who loves language the way that a rapper must sure i guess my question is whether it is challenging to keep up the momentum as you're going through and rewrite writing and rewriting something that long form are you patient like that was that well, easy the, for you no, the, th the thing is, is that when you're, when you're writing a novel, it's agony. It's, it's, ag it's complete agony. Like, it's, it's a, a horrible thing to put yourself through, you know? Like, and the thing is, like, there is, you know, the, all of the instinctive kind of rushes of creativity, the kind of energized outpourings, anybody can do that. that that's not what makes you a writer. The, the bit of this job that makes you a writer is when you don't feel like that, when you feel like you never deserve to even imagine that you could have been a writer, when you hate every word that you've made, when you doubt every single part of your brain, to sit down in that space and work because you've got a deadline to meet, because you've got a novel to write, if you can go through that agony, yeah. and, and what happens in that moment is you know to ignore your brain because your brain is against you in that moment, it's defeating you, you have to be able to trust your hand. Now, I've put 15 years of work into being able to trust my hand with this stuff, with writing, because it's a craft like any other. Do you know what I mean? You, have, yeah. you, 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 you need to develop your skills. You need to be able to expand your capabilities to accommodate your ideas. This is what the job is about. So like, of course, it was, it was really difficult, man. It's a big <laughs> form. And like actually getting to the end of this whole journey, I realize what it takes to write your first novel. It's like, now I've finished this whole thing. It's like, okay, now I'm ready to begin, you know? It's yeah, to, well, you did it, so you can do it again. I hope so. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a beautiful form, and I think it's one that captivates writers. And all my life, I've read novels. Before I was reading poetry, I was reading novels. Right. And it's a form that has always attracted me. But before the idea came, my desire to write a novel was more about wanting to be a novelist rather than actually sure. having an idea big enough to merit the form, you know? Sure, sure, yeah. Cool. I think, you know, from there, let's... Um Let's go to the second part of the show, which is where we look at some surprise clips cool. and go where the conversation will take us. Okay, this is Augustine Burroughs on how to overcome writer's block. So this is actually kind of within your, uh, your world. You know about writing. But before we get to the clip, I want to tell you a little more about one of our sponsors today. It takes courage to build a small business. Don't risk what you've worked so hard for. Protect your small business today with Hiscox. Hiscox offers a new way to buy small business insurance. They tailor their small business insurance coverage to fit your needs, allowing you to buy only what you need. Policies start from $22.50 a month. Plus, it's easy. You can order online or over the phone from a licensed advisor in minutes. Don't wait to purchase coverage for your small business. 
Visit hiscox.com, that's H-I-S-C-O-X.com slash slate today to learn more about what Hiscox can offer your small business and to get a free quote. That's H-I-S-C-O-X.com slash slate. And now let's get back to the surprise clip and the rest of our conversation on Think Again. The worst thing to do with writer's block is kind of like the worst thing to do with back pain. You know, if you have back pain, you don't want to stay in bed for the next five years. You know, you need to begin physical therapy. You need to maybe do yoga or Pilates. You need to move. With writer's block, don't stay away from the writing and think, I'll wait until the solution comes to me because that's not how it works for a writer. The solution comes to us as we're writing. It comes mid-sentence. The solution to writer's block is to write about the writer's block. Why do you have it? Why does it suck? Really? Why? It could be a case of you know you're off plot or off point. It could be that there's something deeper, better, truer, juicier that you really need to write about that maybe you're too embarrassed to write. I'm of the opinion that there's no such thing as writer's block. I don't think it exists. I think that there is the fear of writing badly. That's, that's what it is. And if you're afraid of writing badly, then, then you're not going to be writing because it's a, it's a crippling fear, that. But you just have to take that fear away from it and tell yourself, if I write a load of shit today, it doesn't matter. Right, right. You know, it doesn't matter if it's no good. Like, who, uh-huh. Because the, the point of it is, right, anyone can have an idea, anybody. But finishing an idea, that's what I'm saying, that's the agony. That's, it's difficult. Right. It's always difficult. It's fucking hard work. And like, apologies for swearing. No, no, it's all good. Yeah. But the, the point is, is that like, you're, you're kind of in competition with yourself already because you're trying to improve. You're trying to be better tomorrow than you were yesterday. That's one thing. But having an idea, beautiful, perfect, it's going <laughs> to you know, change the world. It's going to be the best thing you've ever done. Blah, blah, blah. The actual finished thing is going to be clunky. You're going to be ashamed <laughs> of it. You're going to pick it apart. When you can't get to sleep. You're going to hate yourself for doing it. That's the point. That's why you move on and have another idea. You finish things. You finish things. The stepping stones towards finding your voice. It's like, on on a writing day, if I don't feel, if it's not happening, if it's not coming out, I don't, I don't force it. I take a walk. Like I stop. Like, Uh I'm in a slightly different situation because I'm usually, I'm usually quite up against it with deadlines. So I, I wrote the majority of this, the bricks that built the houses, kind of while I was on the road touring. Yeah. So. In a tour bus full of other people. Yeah, in a yeah. tour bus or in a cafe or in a service station or like in the three days that I had off between tours in my bedroom or wh- whatever it was. Like, yeah. And the thing is, like, you can make all kinds of excuses about <laughs> that. You can say, oh, I need some space and I need time and I need natural light and I need a room with a view and I need... <laughs> or you can just, you know, you can just finish it. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard, but it's what, it's what will make you better. Say you don't take a walk and say you sit down and you make yourself write one day and it comes out and it's shit. Do you delete it? Do you rewrite it? You well, know? It depends what you're working on. So if, you're, if I'm working on a play, yeah. you can hear, you can feel when it's a bad line. It's suddenly you're like, what? nobody would ever say that. Or like, this character <laughs> would never say that. Or like, yeah. But the thing is, when, when I'm up against a deadline, or, or usually it's, I'm under a lot of pressure because of my schedule. Because I, I mean, that's the way I work and I'm happy about it. It's good yeah, for yeah. me. But... Sometimes there isn't time to be having an off day. And, yeah. that's, and that's like, it's crazy pressure, but it works. Sometimes it works. Other times, I'm in a really great situation because 
writing can be quite a lonely pursuit, but then when you have an editor or in music, I have a great music producer who I work with, or when I'm making theatre, I have you know the director, right. I work with the director. And there are these other people, these kind of midwives that populate a writer's life that help you to kind of get over yourself enough to just kind of deliver it, you know? Right. And, um, you know, with, with this, for example, with the bricks, the most exhilarating part of this process was deleting 30,000 words <laughs> and feeling how good that was. Like, right. suddenly it got lighter and it kind of held its shape a bit more successfully and I could just feel this thing that I'd only ever heard writers talk about but I'd never experienced, which is like the kind of joy of just cutting, 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 cutting and just watching it kind of grow. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. a really interesting moment. So, yeah, churn out a load of shit. It'll stay there for a bit and then you'll lose it. It's all right, you know. Yeah, so it sounds like, yeah, a big part of your process is kind of the gun to your head. Like, just saying, basically, I got to get this done and putting yourself in a position where that's the case. Yeah, and even yeah. before, when there wasn't deadlines, when I had no publisher or anything else, I was still inflicting that kind of pressure on myself because I've always felt that time is kind of against me. I don't know why, I don't know if you feel like that. But. Yeah, well, increasingly, but uh, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, for me it was interesting because I, I grew up relatively privileged and had the privilege slash curse of being able to kind of wander around. And like, it took me longer to feel the gun of time to my head. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I don't know much about your background, but um, I know from the fact, you know, that so much of the press is about your being from Southeast London and the neighborhood that you focus on and stuff. I'm guessing you maybe didn't have people sending you off to wander around. No, like I didn't the, get sent off to wander yeah. <laughs> around. But uh, no, I grew up, you know, in a really good, supportive environment. But the the way that South London figures in in my work and in in myself is like it's such a huge part of me because if you grow up in a big city, especially in a part in a city that's so South London. Okay, so I suppose for an American audience to kind of to say oh South East London, it probably doesn't mean anything. Like you know, unless you've spent some time in London, but. The kind of character of it, in my head, the way that it is a very creative place in terms of people were really making something happen there, I felt. In, in mm -hmm. my, it's, it's a very mixed place culturally, racially and economically. Lots of different people living very close together. There's a certain sensibility that it gives you if you're from there, which is, it's quite a rough area. There's, it was like the highest, the highest rates of teenage pregnancy and murder amongst teenagers when I was growing up in Lewisham, which is the borough where I grew up. But at the same time, there's a huge amount of music and mm -hmm. a huge amount of amazing, like, vibrant creativity. And I found it to be a really positive place. I grew up in a really good home. My dad was a lawyer. My mum was a teacher. We just lived in this area that was like full of, full of life, you know? It was just full yeah. of life. And every time I walked out of the door and down the street, every time I ever went anywhere, I would pass by thousands, if not fucking tens of thousands of people because it's London, it's a big city. And... I just always felt so close to life, you know, it was just right. everywhere. And I have a huge love for people, like a deep love. I know it's so obvious to say, but I'm really moved by just like being amongst strangers and feeling connected to their humanity and feeling this thing that I'm talking about earlier on about this kind of current of reality that we are denied access to. I think there is something about a kind of a frequency that a writer exists on looking for the kind of looking for the internal experience of strangers you know I don't really know why but you I watch somebody walk down the street and the way that they're carrying their their car keys something about the way they just drop their shopping bag like I feel so blown away by a tiny movement right. that it kind of sends me into this like deep 
compassion for these people, you know, for, for somebody. And I think that the writer is constantly feeling kind of outside of life, which is what sends us to the page often, you know, trying to write ourselves into this gotcha. existence that we, yeah. we're kind of constantly, because we observe so much, we're kind of outside of things. But the, the observation is one of like pure love, really. Yeah, I got, I got lost in South London it, it, and, I got, and I found myself there. You know, I got into all kinds of trouble and all kinds of like beautiful, beautiful things happened in, and it, I still live there and it's still home. You know, in the book there's, you talk about gen gentrification and there's this sense, I mean, it seems like you feel like the heart of South London is still intact, but that there's this threat somehow of it being co-opted or Yeah, it's strange because that I think it's more helpful because this conversation about gentrification, it happens all over the world and it's a tragedy, but at the minute what I've been thinking about is it's more useful actually to pan out of this a little bit and think about what this means in a kind of wider framework, which is this kind of symptomatic greed and the exploitation of land for profit above right. people. And this, you could, okay, yes, it's a, it's a real shame South London's changing, my God, it hurts. But if we pan out a little bit and we think about land, land is being exploited for profit. The people that live on that land are being destroyed, their communities, their cultures are being destroyed. This isn't just happening in cities, this is happening all over the world. It's happening to the first Australians, it's happening in the rainforest in Peru. You know, it's like there is a greed that is running, running the world. Yeah. It's greed and, and, it, and, and it's not, there's no empathy to and, it. You and know? I think that alienation happens not only to the communities that are destroyed, but to the destroyers as well. I mean, I just think that the world that is built up upon the wreckage of these communities is also a world in which it's difficult to form community, like new communities. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I've never lived in a, I don't know. I think that like, this has to go both ways. So if I say that, you know, I love people and that I'm, I'm for people, I can't be just for people that I already agree with, you know? I can't, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, this has to go both ways. You have to, recently I've been thinking, okay, so you need to empower even the very powerful to be more real with themselves, to right. actu actually think about the cost. The only thing I can think to say is just empathy. We just need more empathy. It's very easy for artists, anybody, to basically cut themselves off from all the rest of that humanity and find some way to categorize people and say, like, oh, that person is too you know, that's a greedy corporate person or that's a this person or that, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's hard for anyone to, to remind themselves mm. and try to figure out how to, like, not shut off. It's so difficult because part of me just recoils and kind of wishes that the, the, the world was kind of run by these reptilian monsters, <laughs> but the, the reality is that they're human beings. Yeah. These are human beings that are making these decisions. And, and so at the beginning of this conversation, we were talking about, you know, whether this kind of grappling between what, what we're capable of and right. what we are, uh, what our inherent nature is. And actually, right, I believe that inherently we are physiologically empathetic beings, right? There was, there was a study that, yeah. that took place where, I learned about this in the Science Museum in London, so I know it's true, right? So <laughs> they, they took two strangers, put them in, uh, in a room separated by a glass partition, and one of them stood on a block of ice and the temperature of the other's, the, the temperature of the other person's feet dropped in response to watching another human being who they didn't know stand on a block of ice. Like our bodies are tuned into each other's. It's like if I see like a, if I see a wound on you, I will recoil. It will hurt me at right, some level, right? right? So we have to learn 
people have to learn not to be able to do that, you know? Like, right, yeah. right, yeah. yeah. But so, like, but we're kind of fed this thing about humanity being this, like, inherently, like, aggressive, competitive, selfish. I, I don't believe that. I think that that is something that has encouraged this kind of myth of the individual, which is very helpful for right, capitalism, right. but not very helpful for humanity, you know? Yeah, but, w I mean, fear seems to be a pretty strong force within humanity as well, and it seems to me that a lot of this stuff arises from fear, right? I mean, the primal yeah. fear goes all the way back, right? I mean, we're, we're afraid of death, you know, is probably where it begins, I don't know. But, 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 but then, we, then fear of like... scarcity, fear of whatever, like, fear of somebody taking what's ours, I don't know, I think it's probably pretty old. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm with you. I'm with you, and I think I think you're. Yes, of course, but like once you are, and it sounds so kind of far fetched and also so easy. But this is kind of where I'm at at the minute. Is if you're if you're there, if you're present with yourself, then right. suddenly like the the worry of things, the anxiety of things to come, it's not important because you just you're just where you are, you know. Yeah. And you no, can I... deal with it when it comes, but I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just suddenly was about to say something extremely kind of new agey and transparent, <laughs> and I stopped myself just in time. Let's talk about something else quickly. Phew, yeah, okay, good. Next subject. Um, so let's see what we have. It's. Well, it's interesting that we got all the way there from writer's block. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. So this is William Shatner. Logic of imagination propels scientific discovery. And we'll get to that surprise clip in just a second, but before we do, do you love learning things just to learn them? I think you do. Then I want to recommend The Great Courses Plus. It's a streaming video learning service with hundreds of lectures on everything from astrophysics to British literature. No grades, no tests, just learning for the sake of learning whenever and wherever you like. For me, that's the gym, where I am otherwise completely bored to death. The Great Courses Plus has made me actually look forward to going to the gym. One particularly great course is The Deceptive Mind, taught by Dr. Stephen Novella. It's on cognitive biases and all the many fascinating ways our minds can deceive us. I think it's especially useful at a moment in history when information and disinformation is coming at us from so many directions all the time and the lines between fact and opinion get so blurry. And now, The Great Courses Plus is offering Think Again listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses including Your Deceptive Mind, which is a $215 value, for free when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash think. Start watching today. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash think. And now let's get back to our conversation. The mystery that surrounds us is so profound. Ninety to 98% is dark energy or dark matter. We don't know what it is. We don't know what 98% of the universe is. There's a wonderful line, Science, scientists spread rumors. We know everything is unified. We know, if we use our imagination like the Greeks, we look around us and we say the whole world is unified electrically, atoms, thing, matter. The thing has to be managed in some way. It's there. Everything follows a logic. Wouldn't the theory of everything, maybe you discover that as you die. Maybe as you die, you go, there's the theory of everything. Boom. And you're dead. This kind of, this seeking, when he started talking about 
98% of what's out there being dark matter that we don't understand. They're seeking to understand all the things around us. It's kind of, there is this kind of danger of it becoming about ownership and taking and, 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 and colonizing yeah, yeah. space and material. And, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about this kind of what we've done to this planet, right? To this perfect planet and what we do. And humanity, we, we can celebrate ourselves for all the wonderful advances that we've made, and we should. We've made it safer to live, it's a more, it's more equal society, people are living longer, we're, we're more likely to not die in childbirth, women are able to become educated, and there yeah. are all these wonderful, wonderful things, but at the same time, we are, we're far away from a kind of peace in this constant searching to colonize space and when he was talking about this dark matter that exists outside us like yeah, yeah. there is also a universe within right right and him talking about the greeks the logic of imagination for me that's that's the kind of exciting the exciting part of humanity is is that if you spend enough time with your own <laughs> this sounds again i'm kind of bordering on something <laughs> far out kind of views but if you spend yeah. enough time with your with your own mind and and your own relationship with nature right something elemental something bigger than yourself whether that's the tides or the sky or even the prospect of a city moving you know something right. bigger than yourself then what you can learn and create and imagine and find is kind of endlessly inspiring and to me actually I'm I'm more interested in what we create than what we discover you know okay and yeah just, yeah so, you know, I, I feel the same as you um, because I think of how I'm wired, but I, having thought about it a lot, science at its best and scientists at their best are really curious in the same way that any artist is curious mm. and in the solutions that they come to that they are also incredibly creative. And, and also, I think at its best, there's an appreciation and a wonder of mystery and the fact that like you'll never answer all of those questions as mm. opposed to this power mad greed of like, now we know this and now we control the universe, you know? And, and indeed science was kind of there, at least in the US, like in the 1950s when my grandfather was a scientist, there was this total kind of raving human megalomania around how science was going to make us the masters of everything. Mm. But yeah. I think that the atrocities that it has been responsible for are many, but also no, no less atrocious than the atrocities that organized religion has been responsible for. There are these principles that humanity uses to organize ourselves, right. um, these big systems that we give so much faith to. And then when we lose ourselves in them so fully that we allow ourselves to go along with things that are, with hindsight we realize are hideous and barbarous, you know, I wish that we could have learned from the historical context and we could observe that barbarism in contemporary society because it's still here and it's like, so for example, the migration of peoples who are displaced because of the, mili the military industrial complex or, you know, or environmental decay, like the people are moving and, and, and are being denied access. It's a big thing at the minute in Europe, in, in England, um, this kind of panic and fear about immigration where these, these people in, from Syria are living in these disastrous conflict zones and, and are moving, they're, people are moving, they're, they're going on these epic journeys, these are heroes, you know, that, and I was talking to a friend who, it's a really tragic story, but um, 
They're, they're all in a boat. They're some from refugees from Syria. And he doesn't like the word refugee because suddenly he's a human being. He's on a journey. He's trying to save himself. And suddenly right, right. now he's just he's a refugee. So, he, But he, he was on a boat and a, a companion of his, a friend of his, his child, his two-year-old child was crying. Uh, it's nighttime. They're in the water. If they are discovered, they'll all be sent back. So the, the child, the baby, was, was thrown overboard to stop... For, for the good of the other people in the boat, the, the child was thrown overboard. Then uh, this is a story, this is from, from somebody's mouth, this is real, this is, we're in a huge humanitarian crisis. And yet we can carry on, and this has kind of got nothing to do with science or religion, but it's like, what I mean is, we are in the middle of a massive crisis. And yeah, yeah. Be because of the way that we can kind of just about, as long as we can just about mud along with our own lives, just about distract ourselves enough with the things that we enjoy, we can forget that this is... This is on us now. It's happening, you know, and right. like in the same way that science was responsible for hideous things like eugenics or, you know, hideous things. And the same way religion was responsible for hideous things right. like massacres, like capitalism is responsible for hideous things, you know. And I know that's a kind of a bit of a push to equate what's happening in Syria with that. But it is. It's all about profit, the exploitation of land for profit and wealth and gain. And, uh, and the way that, as you say, these big systems, you know, um, kind of mediate reality for us and distance us from each other. And, and as long as I can get up in the morning and I can get my coffee and, you know, yeah, put yeah. my iPod in and listen to my song and go to work, then it's kind of okay for me that all this death and decay and this despair is happening. It's kind of okay because I don't immediately feel it. Yeah. But I believe that the, the presence of, this is a crazy thing to say and people will probably not like me saying this, but the prevalence of kind of mental illness, I, I think it's, it's a... <laughs> I kind of wish I wasn't saying this out loud, but it's, I believe that it's an effect of this kind of, the, this connectivity that we share being severed and us being so far apart from each other, so atomized, that we imagine that we don't feel the fact that somebody we can't see is in a huge amount of pain, but I believe we do feel it. There is something to be said about the way that, that any society treats its most vulnerable members. You know, society is only as strong as its most vulnerable members, and the fact that in Britain at least, like, we're, um, we, we are living under a Tory government who treat its most vulnerable members with such utter disregard and, in fact, cruelty that it's, it really worries me, you know? It really, really worries me. But at the same time, like, we don't have any hindsight. I can't look, I can't make any sense of this because I'm in the middle of it. And I know that there is a kind of tendency for, like, outrage at the minute and moral panic. It's very easy for me to say, oh, my God, I'm so terrified. I was going to say, as an artist, like, what do you feel obligated to do? I don't feel that everybody is supposed to rush to Syria, but I do think that it, it's very important that, that we acknowledge the reality of what's going on for these, these people. These yeah. are people, and they're on the move. But the, the thing is, like, in terms of my art or my work, like, um, I don't ask my work to be anything other than, you know, the idea. And it, I think if you begin an idea with an agenda of any sort, right, right. the idea will never grow. You cripple it before it's born, you know? So, of course, my thoughts and feelings, my panic, my hopes, my joys is going to be in my work. But, you know, I don't instruct it to be that way. But the, the moment in which it does become important is in the moment of performance. So when you're in a room full of people, you know, the poet's role, in my opinion is to be a part of their community and to speak with and for the people, you know, within their communities. And that, that was always, in other times and in other places, the role of the artist. But the, the kind of elevated, ivory tower, celebrated, canonised, <laughs> you know, artist as separate somehow from the population that gave rise to them. Right. That's something that I find quite difficult 
to respect. In this moment of me being on stage or being in a room full of people and telling poems or playing music, there is an exchange happening between what you're performing and, and the response that you're getting, you know, it's like, and for me that's, um, that's the moment at which all this stuff kind of comes to light, rather than in the moment of trying to create a piece of work, because in that moment it's about, it's between you, your craft and the idea, you know. Right, right. So I'll wind it back to something you said a second ago, and then we'll and we'll take it out on that note. I just I just want to say that like what gives me a little bit of hope with respect to this issue of people being alienated from one another, people being disconnected, and the sort of crisis state that we're in with respect to that is that I keep hearing like the kind of thing that you're saying today about the need for not lumping people into categories for seeing individual people for who they are, for like breaking through those walls. Like I keep hearing that. It seems to be a widely felt <laughs> crisis, as it were. But yet we're in the middle of this kind of manufactured war on, on, a, on, reli on religions, on, on a religious group. There is suspicion and fear and, yeah, yeah. and we, we are actually in this kind of global state of war right now. And just because it isn't happening in England, in America, but, but it's happening all over the rest of the world. It's a very strange time. And I think that the minute that we, that we look back, we think, oh, well, atrocities happen when we uh, demonize a group. But it's happening right now. You know, apparently we are at war with Islam, which is absolutely horrific to think about. Yeah, we're basically, it's the Crusades again. <laughs> you right? know, we're back to the but Middle because Ages. But it's very, like, part of me is like, well, this is either very cleverly engineered, but the, then another part of me thinks, well, actually, the real tragedy here is that it isn't cleverly engineered. This is the kind of, this is the mess and the muck of human endeavor. It's a kind of, yeah. it's a really, even just talking about it, I feel my head just kind of spinning downwards <laughs> into this vortex of, like, <laughs> despair. But then the thing Great. is, like, yeah, what a way to end it. Yeah, <laughs> okay, on that guys, note. have a nice day. <laughs> but I think, like, this. <clears throat> I, it's, I could, we've kind of found ourselves in this. I keep thinking, wow, this is a public conversation. It's like, well, people, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. a difficult thing to talk about because a lot of people are very. I know that in my experience, like people will be very quick to tell me that I know nothing, and that people are very opinionated about yeah, yeah, yeah. about this kind of thing. But I suppose all I'm saying is that I am aware of the tragedy of the times, and. We are in quite deeply tragic and troubling times, and actually that, that touches us all, that's affecting us. And the more we kind of play nice and get on with it, and the worse we're making it for ourselves. Actually, like, I believe, and I think maybe we'll just finish on this, but I think it's important to say, you know, I, I went to the coast the other day. I went, I went to, like, just get to look at the sea and look at the sky. I went to the coast before mm. coming out here. And I was standing on the edge, you know, the edge of the land, and I thought about England. Like, I feel very close to to the soil there, of course, it's where I'm from. And I realized that, you know, it's just this, this piece of land, right? This just sounds so ridiculous, but this is what I thought. And on top of this piece of land, there are just, it's just populated by this kind of noise, which humanity just, we've kind of built these cities and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And we just tell these stories to each other about who we are and what we do. And we tell this story about wealth and money and how we make exchange for goods and services. And we tell stories about schooling and education and healthcare it's it's just stories and actually i stood there and i watched the water come in and go out on the land and i was like okay so this is real and everything the way that we structure ourselves our power structures our structures within our families the way that we fall in love it's just stories that we tell it's just narrative right and i understand this because i'm a teller of stories i understand how important they are i'm in love with stories of course 
And I've started to think, okay, well, if you want to make a change, you just need to change the narrative. You just need to change the dominant cultural narrative. And you just need to be open to hearing stories, the stories of the people that you're not listening to. Because these stories are being told. It's, they're all over the land. And if we could just learn, you know, that, the first thing we need to do is actually hear each other. And the next thing we need to do is just change the fucking narrative, you know? I think that's a good place to leave it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank <laughs> no you worries. so much for being here today, Kate Tempest. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Anyone who is in or around New York City and loves the show, I hope that you'll come out and join us. We're part of NYC PodFest. We're performing on live on May 21st at 5 p.m. at the Cake Shop. So if you just search Think Again Podcast and NYC PodFest, you can find us. Tickets are just $10. And Sarah Jones, the Tony and Obie award-winning playwright, is joining us. It's going to be amazing. Also, if you have not yet had a chance to rate or review the show, and if you do enjoy it, please go to iTunes or wherever you're listening and do that for us. It is greatly appreciated, and it makes a big difference. Lastly, next week, we have a very special episode with actress Mary Louise Parker, and I hope you'll join us then. 